Let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, as we do indeed, as Brandon said to the children, are getting closer to the end of our time in this book. We have one more chapter after this morning. It will last us a couple of more weeks before we turn our attention to our Advent series. But for this morning, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. And if you are able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God? This is the Word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Our God in heaven, indeed. Would you now this morning take your word and meet it with your spirit in our hearts and mold us and make us into the men, women, and children that you've called us to be. In my weakness, may your strength be made manifest. Would you exalt the name of the living Christ in our midst that we may run to him. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. People are often a strange and interesting lot, aren't we? The things we do, the things we think, the things that we say. You know, even as children, we often kick against the goads of the protection and the provision of our parents. We often, as children, yearn for that day when finally we're on our own, that we can become adults. And then we become adults. And we yearn for the good old days of childhood, of having someone tell us what to do and when to do it. In fact, there's a relatively new word that started being used some years ago. And in fact, it was started being used a few years before this, but Grammar Girl named it the word of the year in 2016. And that word is adulting. You saw it everywhere. Adulting's overrated. 
Adulting is hard. Adulting stinks. And over and over and over again, we often, as people, we yearn for freedom, responsibility. But then when it gets hard, we want to go back. God redeemed Israel from Egypt, redeemed them from bondage and slavery. And when things got hard, what did they want to do? They wanted to go back. In fact, did you rescue us from Egypt so that we could die in the desert? They cry. We want to go back. Sometimes we do, don't we, think that bondage is easier than freedom. And we often have that same tendency to want to go back to what we know. Maybe to what is familiar. What we might even think may have been easier. Or maybe go back to that time when we're just told what to do. Because then it's clear, right? Where we can just check things off a list. I did that, I did that, I did that. I'm, I'm good to go. Well, the Galatian church really struggled with this. In fact, Paul said to them, he said, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? They struggled with this. And the Hebrew Christians, they too struggled with this. We've seen this already with all the difficulties that they were undergoing, whether that was persecution from without or from within, the temptations that were coming at them, and, and, and their persecutions that often came from their fellow Jews, but it also came from the Romans. It seemed like it was coming from every side. And, and they were still tempted by their own sinfulness. So they were, they were tempted to turn back to Judaism, to where they could just do all those things that they could see, things that they could check off the list. And they remembered all of those days with rose-colored glasses. Oh, if we could just go back. But this following Jesus, trusting Him, trusting in His finished work for me, well, that's a lot like adulting. That's hard. It's difficult. There's freedom there. And we get that, don't we? We struggle with it as well. It may not be the same temptation for us as it was for the Hebrew Christians to return to Judaism. But there's that same temptation to turn away from Christ and to turn to something else that may just might be a little bit more spelled out for us. Turn to something else where I've got a list that I can check off. Because then I can at least be confident in myself and not have to trust in somebody else. We struggle with that, don't we? Struggle with thinking that maybe there's something easier, maybe there's something better. But then we also know that to do so, to turn to anything different, to turn to anything else would be to leave our only hope. It would be to leave the wonder and glory of what we have in Christ Jesus. It would be to leave the blood of Christ for the blood of Abel. It would be to leave the security of a kingdom that cannot be shaken to one that has already fallen. To one that is only full of trembling fear. It would be to leave Mount Zion 
the city of the living God, and to return to Sinai, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest. It would seem that this would be such an easy choice. Why in the world would we choose Sinai? And yet that's the struggle, isn't it? These two mountains, Mount Sinai or Mount Zion. This is such a great passage. It's a beautiful passage. It's a passage that moves us to worship. We see that in verse 28 where, uh, well, we'll see that when we get there. But, it, but it's also a passage. It's also a passage that forces a question. A question that, that's very applicable to you and I. And that is this, what or who are you going to trust? Or maybe we could just put it this way, how are you going to live in this world in which God has placed you? In God's provision for you or in your own? Trusting in God's provision actually leads to joy and to worship, to gratitude. Trusting in our own provision leads to fear, terror, and trembling. Again, it would seem like a no-brainer, wouldn't it? And yet we struggle. It's really a question for us as believers, where have we come in Christ Jesus? And we're going to answer that this morning. In fact, we're going to answer three things. First, we are going to answer where have we come. Secondly, we're going to answer in whom have we come. That ought to be self-evident when we get there. And then finally, why have we come? And that too ought to be self-evident. But first, where have we come? Again, the author of Hebrews here, he's contrasting here in our passage these two uh, places, these two different mountains. We've got Mount Sinai on the one hand, we've got Mount Zion on the other. And he starts with a negative, and it's a really powerful statement that he begins with. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched or to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, whirlwind, and to that blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which is such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. This was Mount Sinai. It was a place of trembling. It was a, a place of terror. And for good reason. The, the Lord, in fact, had told Moses, he said, look, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. We can see then why that might be a place of trembling. Because if you even touch it, you're done for. It was a place of trembling. And, and this is that place, Mount Sinai. This is the place that the author of Hebrews is speaking of. And yet, too, think about it. As we think to their history, this was a place where the people of God, when we think of our history even, as the people of God, this is a place where the people of God of old congregated to hear the voice of God, to meet with the living God. And he says that the sight was so terrible that Moses even said, I'm full of fear and trembling. Again, that's Mount Sinai. But he sets all of that up for this contrast. And it's a beautiful, wonderful, glorious, negative conjunction. But you. See, this is not where you've come. 
Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to these early Hebrew Christians. He's talking to all those who are found in Christ Jesus. This is not where you've come, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, he says. The heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly of the church and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? There's a lot that's said right there. And those several sentences just kind of laid out for us. What exactly is he saying to us? What is he communicating to the people here in Hebrews? What's he communicating to us? What does it all mean? And I think for us, particularly in the culture in which we live, I think we're tempted to read this and to think that this is yet future to us. That we put it out there somewhere. That the general assembly and the church of the firstborn is when we actually get to heaven. We may think that this picture of worship, that this picture, picture of meeting with the living God is reserved for glory. I think we're tempted to do that because that's the Christian culture in which we live. But I want you to look at what the author says. That's not what he says. This isn't looking towards something that has yet to come. He says, but you have come. You have come. This is in the not to be a grammar geek, but this is in the perfect tense, not the future tense. You have come. And yet, it's, it's not an earthly abode. It's not an earthly destination. It's not, it's not a little place carved out in the middle of the Middle East somewhere. No, it's not there. It is a heavenly one. You have come in Christ Jesus to this place. And this is what takes place in Christ Jesus. It's what takes place when we meet with the living God. When we come to know Christ. And, and particularly it's what takes place when we worship Him. As the people of God come together corporately. Yes, most of you got up this morning. Got in your cars. And you drove to 5845 Bellevue. I say most of you. I would imagine all of you unless some of you walked. Or maybe flew. But I doubt it. All of you got up this morning and came to 5845 Bellevue. But we are worshiping with all those who've been made perfect in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. With all the righteous made perfect. This, this is the church of which we are members already. Already. And our worship then is lifted up to that great throne room in heaven and it's presented along with all the angels and all those enrolled in heaven and to God himself. This is a true and biblical picture of worship. So when we say that when we worship, when we come together to worship, that we are not the audience, that we don't come here just to watch something happen, but we actually come to participate, it's true. It's true. We are presenting our worship before God himself. And so when we do that, how much more serious then is that very act of corporate worship?
how you come into this place. How you think when you come into this place. How you participate when you come into this place. When you sing, let's take something very practical. When you sing, you not singing to the person next to you so that he or she can critique your voice. No. You're singing with the voice that God has given to you, to him. He's your audience. Not anybody sitting around you. And, and even our worship, even the best that we could give apart from Christ, apart from his mediating work on our behalf, our, our worship, even our worship would not come before the throne. And that's why we, that's why we pray in the morning. That even our worship would be cleansed by the blood of Christ and received through Him. Because apart from that, even our best is not acceptable before God. And we might say, well, that's a pretty low view of man. No, it's a high view of God. And the wonder of the gospel is that He's actually given us a way to come into His presence. That's a biblical view of God and of man. And yet... That is the reason that we can come boldly, isn't it? Why we have so much confidence and boldness before the Lord. I mean, notice Moses, uh, the, the very mediator of the old covenant, was full of fear and trembling. And so we said, well, then why is it that we can come uh, with our worship before God? Because of the mediator of the new covenant, because he's so much better. Remember, that's been part of the argument of the author of Hebrews the entire time. He's better. The new covenant's better. Jesus is better. And so we come because of the mediator of the new covenant and we come to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And we might get to that part and we go, okay, what? I don't really know what that means. What, what does that mean? Well, the Lord says to Cain, remember the story of Cain and Abel, how Cain rose up and he slayed his brother. The Lord said to Cain after he killed Abel, he said, what have you done the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's what the Lord said to him. What was his voice crying? It's crying for vengeance. It's crying for judgment. For judgment. The blood of Abel cried out for judgment against Cain. Okay. But here's the wonder of the gospel. We don't come to that kind of blood. We come to the blood of Christ. And what's that better word which it speaks? It's not a cry of judgment. It's a cry of forgiveness. A cry of, forget, of, a cry of cleansing. It's a word of reconciliation. Christ's blood cries out for forgiveness. His blood cries out not guilty. His blood cries out righteous. His blood cries out mine. Mine. Oh, to be declared not guilty. And even to be declared righteous. To belong to the Lord. To not have to be afraid. To not have to wonder about a future. And you know, for some of you, this, this may be something you need to hear. You, you may carry baggage from past sin, guilt, fear, 
shame. I know some of you struggle with that. I've talked with some of you for those things. But you need to hear what the blood of Christ cries. You are forgiven. You're forgiven. And notice, notice too, so that, that's, the, that's that wonder and that glory of the gospel. But there's also, a, there's also an urgency to this call, too. And that's why he says not to refuse him who's speaking. And he goes on, he says, For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his argument is really simple, isn't it? If Moses' word was sure, and what Moses said came to pass, how much more so than the word of him who speaks from heaven? How much more so is the word of Christ? So again, the urgency of the message of salvation. Believe, because his word is true. Moses said it, and what Moses said came to pass. Even more so, Jesus, the better mediator of a better covenant, a better high priest, in a better city. Believe his word. So we have this urgency, and we... And we well, we begin to see, don't we, too, how our view of God, our view of God, our view of ourselves, our view of, of um, His work on our behalf, all of that affects the way that we view the world around us. It affects the way that we, uh, or it affects our ministry. It affects all of life. It affects missions. It affects evangelism. If we, if we know the God who redeemed us, who's brought us near, that we've experienced the wonder and joy of, forgive, of the forgiveness or the freedom of forgiveness, what does it lead to? It leads to worship. It leads to joy. It leads to a proper motivation for life and for ministry. It leads to us wanting others to know the truth of this God. We want others to worship the living God. Why? Because we know Him. We want others to know the one in whom our hope is found. The one in whom we have come. The one in whom we can come boldly and confidently. And so again, that should be self-evident. In whom do we come? We come in Christ Jesus. But it's interesting, is it's not uncommon for people to say that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. But this is part of the author's point here, is to show us that, look, God never changes. He's no different today than He was yesterday. The text says that when God spoke from Sinai, the, the mountains shook. But He promised, yet once more I'll shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So the same voice that shook the mountains at Sinai is the same voice that will shake both heavens and the heavens and earth. And, and notice the purpose of the shaking. Brandon showed it with the children, didn't he? It's to shake, all, shake away all of those things that come to an end. All of those things that may be shaken. So that's what left is the kingdom of God. And notice this. For the Hebrew Christians, what would have been on their mind? Where did they want to go? They wanted to go back to Judaism. 
They wanted to go to the temple. They wanted to go to the sacrifices. And what is the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying, that stuff's been shaken. It's gone. It didn't last. Why? Because all that was earthly that pointed to a different reality. And what is that reality? It is Christ Jesus. So if you turn your back from Christ Jesus, there is no going back because that's not there. And there's no hope in it because it pointed to Christ. Pointed to Christ. Yet once more, he says, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So again, God removes those things that can be shaken. And the, things that, and the thing that remains is the kingdom of God. We see that in verse 28. Therefore, he says, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service or acceptable worship with reverence and awe. It is the kingdom of God. That's what, that's what can't be shaken. That's why we're also called seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Don't chase after the things that shake away. You do that, you lose everything. You seek first his kingdom, you gain all things. Again, it seems like such an easy thing, doesn't it? And yet we struggle. But this kingdom of God, it's that to which you are Members, you are on solid ground, as it were. When judgment comes, you're safe in the Lord. And you're safe in the Lord alone, only in Him. And, and not just when judgment comes, but even today as we live in this world in which God has placed us. We talked about this in distinctives class. It, sometimes you look at the world and it just seems so upside down. Black is white, white is black. Forward is backward, backward is forward. Up is down, down is up. I mean, you just look out the world and go, oh my goodness, it's a wreck, it's a mess. But even, even in the midst of that, you're members of the kingdom of God that can never be shaken. He's given you a kingdom by and in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus. What a gift. What a gift. And notice what he says too. The God you worship is a consuming fire. Again, interesting, right? People think the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. No. Same God. He's still a consuming fire. He's not an impotent, grandfatherly figure who sits in heaven wringing his hands Hoping all things work out. Boy, I hope this works. No. He is the God who sits in heaven and he laughs at the plans of men. That's the type of God that we serve. Now, you know, we, some of us in our Western ears, we may be offended by such language. Oh, how dare you say that God sits in heaven and he laughs. Brothers and sisters, if you... Do not believe in a God who is sovereign and in all power and all powerful and in control of all things and who is dangerous and is a consuming fire, then you worship a false God and he is not worth worshiping. Period. 
If you can contain the God you serve, he's not worth worshiping. He's a consuming fire. He's in no way safe. But he is good. You know what illustration I'm going to use for those of you who have been at Trinity Grace for a long time. I use it all the time. It's one of my favorites. One of my favorite scenes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lucy talking to Mr. Beaver. He's at, she's asking about Aslan. And she says, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, who said any?" Mr. Beaver said, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. What a great quote, isn't it? Of course he's not safe. If you worship a safe God, you are worshiping a false one. And one that's not worthy to be worshiped. The same God our forefathers worshipped long ago is the same God we worship today. This same God, just as much as he hated idolatry then, he hates idolatry today. Just as much as he was a jealous God yesterday, he is a jealous God today. Yes, Christ is a better mediator of a better covenant. And our worship is acceptable before God because of him. But Jesus doesn't change the character of God Jesus is God. He's the visible expression of the invisible God. His character never changes. Jesus doesn't give us the freedom to worship in any old way we want. He doesn't say anybody who wants to come to the Father can come in any old way you want to come. He doesn't say that, does he? There's one way. And it's through Christ. It's through Christ. In the ways prescribed for us in his word. Again, God is not our audience, not man. And, and so it should be. So it should be in all areas of life as well. If we don't see the magnificence of Christ, then where does the motivation to live come from? To worship come from? Where's the motive for missions? Where's the motive for evangelism? if not for the magnificence of Christ. If we have a passion for Christ, we'll have a passion to see him worshipped. Of course, this is where what we believe about Christ, how we see Christ, comes together in application in regard to worship, in regard to, in regard to outreach, living by faith, all those types of things. If we didn't have a passion for the Lord, where would our passion for others to come to know the Lord come from? We wouldn't have one. But if our passion is to worship God, for Him to be worshipped, for Him to be pleased, if that's above all else, then guess what? We've got a boldness in ministry. If I were to minister just to please men rather than Christ, then I would be paralyzed by my own fear. I'd be paralyzed even to stand up here and preach. I would wonder and worry about what others might think of me. In fact, it was interesting right before we just started. I most of the time forget that this is live on YouTube or Facebook. I most of the time forget. I'm so glad I forget. Because when I remember, like I did today, sitting right down there going, oh no. Then my flesh creeps up, tempts me. What are other people going to think about you? They're going to think you really take this Jesus stuff seriously, aren't they? Yeah, I hope so. 
I hope so. But still yet, I fear that in my flesh. I wonder, do we care what others think about us more than we do what God thinks about us? Or maybe even a just as important question, do we care what others think about us as much or more than what they think about God? Does his name matter to us? Does it matter? We should be passionate about the name of Christ. What do we think of Christ? Well, that moves us then, doesn't it, to why we've come. And again, should be self-evident, we come to worship. Response of worship. And let the nations be glad, Piper writes, missions exist because worship doesn't. And he says right before that, he says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. And he's right. Worship is. Worship is. We come to worship. And why do we worship? Well, look to verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. What drives us to thankful Reverential worship is what God has done in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I I know you know that as much as I know that. But do we really let that sink in? I mean, what are the things that we drive after in life? I mean, me and my kids and my family have this conversation quite often What are the things that we want, that we desire? And we talk about, it's not bad to desire things, but what about when those desires become more important than our desire for the Lord or our desires for the kingdom of God or that we fudge just a little bit over here so that we can get this one thing? What is it that our heart longs for? When you have all things in Christ Jesus, I I don't think functionally we believe that. You know what I think we do? I think we go, oh yeah, spiritually speaking, I get it. We have all things in Christ, but that doesn't really satisfy my needs. It doesn't really satisfy my desires. What I really need is A, B, C, D, or E. Oh, that God would change our heart in that way. Oh, that he'd change our heart. You, as the people of God, have received the blessings of Christ Jesus. We, as the people of God. So let us then offer to God acceptable worship. We, don't, we, we often don't worship Him as we ought because we fail to acknowledge who He is and what He has done. Sometimes, sometimes I think it's as if what He's done is just not that big of a deal to us. And it's not that big of a deal to us because, quite frankly, we just think we're good enough. Or we don't really need it. We don't think sin is as destructive. And we don't see sin as, as cosmic treason. You see, that's, it's, it's all right. We don't see sin as that big of a deal. So why, if we don't see sin as that big of a deal, then why would we think that Jesus and his work is that big of a deal? We wouldn't, would we? 
I saw an interview with a young lady just this past week, and she said something to the effect. She said, I just don't see why I need Jesus. And what I wanted to say, and what I may have said to my screen, you need Jesus because our God is a consuming fire and you are a sinner. That's why you need Jesus. Now, we don't want to think about the gospel in that way either, do we? Because that bothers our, our what do you call it, our uh, flimsy conscience? Our, that's not the word. Anyways, it's not important. You know what I mean. It bothers our conscience. But that's exactly why we need Jesus. Because our God is a consuming fire and we are sinners. And we need a Savior. So, oh, that we might see Christ. Oh, that we might see our need so that we might see Christ. And then remembering that we have received a kingdom that can't be shaken. Remembering that Christ has shed his blood so that you might have life and have life abundantly. Remembering that you were once lost but now found. Remembering that you were condemned but now have life. Remembering that, that all of those things should move us then to thankful, reverential worship. And and it should affect the way that we live our lives. It should affect the way that we desire to share this good news that we call it with others around us. Oh, brothers and sisters, that we might be so moved by the love of Christ that we, in the words of Paul, might say, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their, on their behalf. And I say all of this, don't, don't misunderstand this morning. I say all of this not because I want to motivate you to be zealous for the Lord. I don't. I don't want to whip you up into some sort of emotional frenzy so that our worship is more passionate or vibrant or so that your life is somehow changed. I don't want to have anything to do with that on my end because that kind of stuff doesn't last. I want the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to motivate you to a zealousness for the Lord. A zealousness mixed with wisdom. I, I want our worship, even here, that we would remember every time we come together that we're worshiping with all the saints who have gone before us. And we are raised up into the heavenlies. And that that, that reality, and yes, even... I know, I'm Reformed Presbyterian, but I'm going to say it. Even that experience, that it might move you. Strengthen you as you meet with the living God to live by faith throughout the week. And may we, may we zealously desire others to worship the living King. And we desire others to have that which we have. That others might know the God we proclaim. I love young David's response, or dare I say it, even his taunt to the Philistine giant 
as we read of that wonderful story where he kills the giant. Let me just read you what he says to him. He says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And now listen to this part. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Mm. Oh, the passion for the name of the Lord. May Jesus be proclaimed here. Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. In a way, in that we are gripped by his excellencies, that we are gripped by the enormity of his perfect life and work on behalf of sinners like us, that we cannot but respond in joyful song, that we cannot but respond with a changed life throughout the week, that we yearn indeed to worship Christ the risen King, because in him, We may live in this world in which he placed us, but we are members of the city of the living God. Let's pray, shall we? God in heaven, would that truth work its way into the depth of our hearts and soul? And may we be different because of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.